peace is not simply um, the lack of violence or its absence. It's actually a more positive view of civic friendship and society that actually helps us think about finding goods in common. And so if we can share a common good like civic peace, even despite our differences, we can begin to work together and try to figure out what peace involves in our certain common life. And we can find ways to resist those things that might threaten our peace. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Michael Lamb is an associate professor of interdisciplinary humanities at Wake Forest University, where he's also the F.M. Kirby Foundation Chair of Leadership and Character and the executive director of the Program for Leadership and Character. He's the author of A Commonwealth of Hope, Augustine's Political Thought, a book that I appreciated very much. I invited him on the Habit Podcast mainly because I wanted to talk about the ways that hope relates to persuasion, but we ended up talking about a lot of other interesting topics as well. Michael Lamb, I'm so glad that you were on the Habit Podcast today to talk about your book, A Commonwealth of Hope, Augustine's Political Thought. I'm glad to be here, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. I, I say we're going to talk about A Commonwealth of Hope. We I don't know how much we'll get into the details of your of the book itself. I'm really interested, in, though, in the idea of how the, the principle of hope um, shapes your way of thinking about persuasive writing. Um, so we'll get to that when we get to it, but, but I guess we do need to provide a little bit of a little bit of background. You know, um, uh, as you say in your in your book, because Augustine is so well known for drawing this distinction between the city of man and the city of God, the city of man. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to read a, a little quote from Augustine. The two cities had been formed by two loves, the city of man by the love of self, even to the, even to the contempt of God. The city of God by the love of God, even to the contempt of the self. The former, that is the city of man, in a word, glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. For the one seeks glory from men, but the greatest glory of the other is God, the witness of conscience. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, thou art my glory and the lifter up of my head. That was a long quote, but anyway. Um, and so, as you say, um, because of that distinction, um, Augustine has the uh, the reputation of being overly pessimistic about the world we live in, and perhaps overly otherworldly in the way he looks forward to the the, the city of God. And you say that's not uh, that's not fair, and that um, it's the virtue of hope that makes it possible to live meaningful meaningfully in the city of man. Um, so is that? Is that a fair way to restate your position, I guess, is a, is my question. Great. Great. Yeah, thanks, John. I think it's really helpful to understand um, that key distinction between the two cities in Augustine's thought. You know, he's often seen, as you say, as this pessimist about the world that denies the world's goods and turns our attention only toward the other world, the city mm -hmm. of God. And um, I do think that's a bit more complex. And so what I really try to do in my work is show the ways in which Augustine is understands the two cities. Um, he doesn't understand the heavenly city as simply being in heaven uh, mm -hmm. after time. He yeah. sees it as being part of our life now. And we can be part of the heavenly city here and now if we order our loves in the right ways. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, he's really trying to sort of disrupt the idea that 
heaven and earth or these separate entities. Okay. Uh, we can be part of that process now. And so um, many people will then assume that the heavenly city means uh, the church and the yep. earthly city means the state. And mm-hmm. we can identify the two cities by their institutions. But I think the passage you just read is really helpful in showing that he identifies the two cities not by our affiliations with institutions, but by our loves. How do we order our loves toward God or self? And so in that case, he thinks it's not really possible for us to uh, live a meaningful life in the earthly city or the city of man if we're ordering our loves to self. Uh Earthly city is a place where we order our loves to self. So he's really trying to help us order our loves to God and therefore our hopes to God and the city of God. And so it is really a vision of hope being the virtue we need in this temporal life, what he calls the secular age, where we're mixed Uh together among the two cities to achieve our ultimate goal, which he identifies as the city of God. Um, But importantly, he doesn't actually think our hope is only otherworldly. He also recognizes we need certain goods in this life temporal goods such as friendship or peace that help us on our journey toward the heavenly city. And so he really thinks about earthly goods or temporal goods being important parts of our journey toward the heavenly city. And even in his Enchiridion, a little handbook on faith, hope, and love, he identifies the Lord's prayer as a really good example or practice of hope. He identifies the prayer as having uh, petitions that focus on three eternal goods, um, Mm -hmm. but also including temporal goods like daily bread or yeah. Delivered from temptation, which we need now in this life to be able to achieve our ultimate goal. So for him, he's really recognizing the ways in which we hope for both temporal and eternal goods and that we must order those goods in the right way to be part of the city of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, when we think about persuasion, then. um, you, Like so much of what, what I when I think about the way rhetoric works. Um, and the way people talk about, and even even we're talking about, say, ad copywriting, um, right. it's always it, it tends to be focused on um, uh, helping the 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 reader, the listener, the audience understand what's in it for them, right? If you if you vote this way, if you buy my product, whatever, this it's it's the love of self, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm just trying to to maybe you can help me make sense of um it a a kind of rhetoric that is geared toward the city of God. Mm-hmm. Um, if if we're not, it feels like the low hanging fruit for persuasion is convincing people of what's in it for them. Mm-hmm. Um. Talk to me about how another way of thinking about persuasion, besides helping people see what's what's in it for them in terms of if they do what you want to do, they'll get what they want. Right. Well, Augustine himself is a great rhetorician. He spent years yeah. as a professor of rhetoric in ancient yeah. Rome and taught rhetoric uh, to uh, those in, in Rome and Milan where he was based. Um, and so he, he really uses rhetoric very effectively in his writing to really encourage his readers and his listeners to um, seek the city of God. And he does it in various ways. He often will appeal to their own good, but it's not a good based on love of self. It's mm-hmm. their ultimate good. Mm-hmm. He thinks that real flourishing happens when we order our loves to God and neighbor in the right ways. Yeah. And so he wants to appeal their their desire to live a happy life. He has a whole book called The Happy Life, 
Mm-hmm. Which tries to disrupt the idea that we can achieve happiness through these fleeting sort of temporal goods like money or power or fame mm-hmm. and asked us to rethink about the ways in which eternal goods might constitute our happiness. And so I do think he's appealing to our desire for happiness and peace, mm-hmm. but trying to redefine what it might look like. And for him, yeah. that's got to be a, a, an eternal um, um, way of understanding those those important goods. So I think he would actually affirm the need to appeal to people's desire for happiness. Yeah. But expand the scope of what happiness might mean to where we uh-huh. flourish in ways that embody the love that he thinks that we are we are called to. Yeah. And I think I think Augustine is is his category is really helpful for thinking in in terms of I can't have flourishing at the expense of other people's flourishing. Right. Right. And um, I do think uh, a lot of the political rhetoric, for instance, that we sort of swim in has to do with making sure I get to hold on to what's mine. And if that's at the expense of somebody else, then too bad. Right. Um, and and yet I end up living in a world that's not as good. You know, I, I get to be the uh, OK, I maybe I enjoy a higher place in the hierarchy, but it's a hierarchy that. I don't especially want to be a part of, you know, that, that I'd rather be in a different kind of hierarchy. Right. Yeah. He, he really understands common goods to be an orienting feature of his thought. Um, uh-huh. He's himself Roman. And there's a very important distinction between common goods and private goods in uh-huh. Roman thought. Uh-huh. And so he's really applying that distinction toward his Christian theology and suggesting that if we hope for common goods, then in common goods, we can all be participants and so uh-huh. we don't lose the good by being part of it. It's private goods that we try to possess for ourselves mm-hmm. that have the real problem. And yeah. in many ways, you can cast out his distinction between the two cities as the heaven city focused on the common good, which he identifies as, as God, the common good of all. Uh-huh. Or on private goods, which is the ultimate good of the private good is the self. Yeah. And so he's really worried about the ways in which in seeking private goods for ourselves, we deny the goods of others and then use that to dominate others for our own purposes or yeah. use them as mere means to achieving our own aims and, and ideals. And so mm-hmm. his real worry is if you actually love human beings and others in God, he says, then that chastens us from trying to possess them as ours because we recognize they actually are, are not just ours to possess or dominate, but they're actually part of God's creation. And therefore, that recognition can help us sort of restrain our loves that might be motivated by self or pride in ways that conduce to the love of God and neighbor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We I, I, I had you on to talk about hope. We haven't we haven't used the word hope very much yet, but but now we're going to hunker down and we're going to talk about hope. Great. Um, do you have a quick definition of hope that would that would be all helpful for us to sort of sort of frame this discussion? Sure. You know, hope, as I understand it, as Augustine understands it in, in his work, it's it's a kind of love or desire for a good that is future. Mm-hmm. It's not past or present. It's in the future. It's a good that's possible for us to attain. It's not impossible, but it's also not yet achieved or possessed. So mm-hmm. hope is for, in some ways, what you might say is the unseen. We hope for things that we've not yet seen or possessed for us. So that's the basic conceptual definition. Okay. And he understands hope as, as both an attitude or affection, but also as a virtue. And we can talk more about that if you'd like as well. Well, let's do. What's the what's the distinction between an affection and a virtue? 
Yeah, an affection is more of a natural response that we human beings have to things that we see to be uh, future possible goods. Mm-hmm. We might feel hopeful about a certain good or a certain outcome. It might feel that as a feeling or as a temporary sort of disposition uh, of ours. But a virtue is a more stable disposition. It's uh-huh. it's not just a fleeting feeling that's only here temporarily. It's part of our character that we have to cultivate in various ways and refine to make sure we're hoping for the right things in the yeah. right ways in the right amount. So the virtue of hope really is much more stable than a feeling. Um, it's uh-huh. also something that requires more practice and cultivation. It's not uh-huh. something you can just have naturally or automatically. You have yeah. to really work at it to develop it over time. And third, it helps us make sure we're ordered toward the right objects. Uh, you know, the, the attitude or affection of hope can go wrong in various ways. Yeah. So we need a virtue that helps guide us to the right objects in the right ways in the right context. And Augustine thinks that virtue of hope is really important for us in ordering our hopes uh, for temporal and eternal goods in the right ways, and also avoiding what he sees as two vices of disorder. Okay. Presumption, uh, which is excessive hope or hoping too much for a certain good or too much in someone to uh, help us achieve it. Um, or despair, which is the lack of hope, where we actually give up on achieving a possible good that we desire and maybe possible if we actually work to achieve it. So despair and and presumption both kind of cause us to rest in a certain way and not work toward things that we actually seek. And so hope as a virtue helps us um, be responsive and motivated to seek the goods that we desire. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So the the two failures, the the two big failures of Hope are presumption, despair, right. right? Both cause us to not strain forward to the good that that we might hope for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, you're you. This is a question I kept having as I was reading your book. So now that I've got you in front of me, I'm going to ask you. You talk about achieving good, like we, and the the role of hope in our achievement of good how would um how would augustine feel about that language i mean are we over things that we can achieve or things that are going to be uh that god's going to do yeah great question i think augustine is often known as a great uh, theologian of grace uh-huh. in this context and achievement might be uh what he would call a, a pelagian vision of, of our own self-sufficiency as human beings to achieve things on our own so i try to use not achievement in the book but actually attainment which is more okay. we can attain certain objects that might be given to us or we might actually work for so i try to use the word attainment or, or realize okay. to, right. to avoid that worry so um, forgive me if i, I misquoted you if i know I think it's a great question because, you know, we often can think about when we hear the word virtue, given the history of the word virtue, that is through kind of cultivation and practice, that it mm-hmm. might be something that we can just achieve on our own. And Augustine in his own time had critics and, and opponents who believe that. Uh, his debate with Pelagius is often around, can we actually achieve perfection or virtue on our own, or do we need God's grace to do that? Mm-hmm. Augustine comes down inside of grace here, mm-hmm. and so he does think that we have these virtues ultimately because we receive the, the gift from God. But importantly, he doesn't think that grace falls down like manna from heaven. Mm-hmm. He recognizes yeah. that we uh, experience grace as mediated through friendships, through other human beings, and through ordinary practices, um, such as confession or prayer or 
imitating moral exemplars who might demonstrate hope. And so if you read his confessions, his autobiography, you see him as he orders his hopes toward God, drawing on practices such as prayer and confession or looking to exemplars like St. Ambrose or his mother Monica Uh as people who really embody the kind of virtuous hope that he aspires toward. And so I think he does see that that these human practices can actually mediate grace in ways that that help us to develop that virtue uh, in ways that order us toward God um, more fully. Okay, but but your book is about politics, right? It is. The subtitle is Augustine's Political Thought. Yes. And politics isn't strictly a matter of grace. I mean, we are talking about um, public, you know, public effort toward public goods. Um, So what does hope have to do with that? Yeah, I think you're right. So, you know, Augustine's one of the great critics of of politics in the sense he recognized the ways in which the pursuit of power and the lust for glory can cause us to seek to dominate other people to prove our power and glory. So he's very attuned to the way that that pride and self-interest sort of inhabit and infect politics. But he also doesn't think that politics um, is necessarily a a bad thing. In fact, he recognizes we need politics. We need ways to order our common life Mm -hmm. to achieve the goods we share in common including both peace and justice. Those are very when you say peace. Things. You're not talking about inner peace. You're talking about. Well, I'm talking about, yeah, all kinds of peace. I mean, he, he thinks about peace. There's a great passage from the city of God in book 19, chapter 13, where he identifies different kinds of peace. And there's uh-huh. a piece of the body and soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also the piece of the household, the piece of the city, and mm-hmm. ultimately from him, the piece of the heavenly city. Yeah. So he sees these pieces as being in, interconnected in some way. And so for him, as you said earlier, the piece of an individual's, flourishing can't be separated from the peace of the city or the household. Mm-hmm. They are really interconnected. And so if we care about the peace of the soul, we have to care about the conditions for that soul to flourish politically yeah. and socially. Mm-hmm. And so Augustine really tries to sort of show the ways in which our, as individuals, our flourishing is wrapped up in the flourishing and peace of the city in uh-huh. a very important way, which means that we have to think about how we as citizens preserve the conditions in politics for us to flourish. Mm-hmm. And so seeking goods like justice and peace are quite important for that aim. And so what I argue in the book is that if we care about um, these important goods, we have to think about ways we inhabit a mode of, of service and citizenship that reflects love and the kind of rightly ordered hope that we think is important for our common life. And so I think Augustine gave you a great resource as we think about the vocabulary and the ways we might order our hopes and loves uh, through acts of service and citizenship to preserve our common goods. Yeah, yeah, great. You um, um, to return to the idea of despair and presumption. Uh, you make the case in your book that that for politicians who desire to control and dominate, um, mm. despair and presumption are really useful, right? Mm. And hope maybe is a little more dangerous for people mm. who wish to dominate other people. Yeah. Um, but if I can cause you to despair, then you stop hoping for yes. anything better. And if I can stir up a kind of presumption, you can treat me as some sort of mess- messianic figure. Right. And I think we, we see this going happening on all, all sorts of political, you know, from all sorts of political directions. You know, I, I'd written a, a, a Tuesday letter, my you know, I sent out a letter every Tuesday to writers about your book um, back in November, and, and somebody wrote me and said, you know, I, I 
I think you you probably assume that I'm on the side that you accuse of presumption. I'm like, I think all the sides are guilty of presumption <laughs> because, again, I mean, all sides are presenting themselves as I'm the one who can fix this problem that's otherwise unfixable. Um, and so I I want to talk about again uh, with the question of persuasion, and, and you were you were quoting Jeffrey Stout when you got on the subject of um the the right kind of social criticism or the right kind of political rhetoric. Um I think Stout specifically said social criticism, but I'm I'm gonna, right. gonna expand that, is to adopt a perspective that makes the dangers of our situation visible without simultaneously disabling the hope of reforming it. Right. And right. I, you especially see this with with the way people are trying to figure out how to talk about global warming, for instance. Right. Right. It's it's been so much it's a disaster. It's a disaster. It's a disaster to the point that people are kind of like, well, if it's a disaster, then I think I'll just crank up my suburban and drive to the convenience store. You know. So, right. um, let's talk about that. I mean, how do you yeah. thread that needle, and how, how does what does hope have to do with that? I mean, absolutely. Well, I think Augustine um, is one of the great practitioners of this um, this method of rhetorical and social critique. Um, he recognizes that if we want to be um, unsettled in our presumption or our pride, we need to know the problems and the real challenges. So he's a very acute analyst of the way that pride and our self-interest might cause us to be presumptuous about certain goods or about our own sort of flourishing in a way that calls us to be really passive about changing anything in our life. Um, but he also recognizes that if you point those out very clearly and very vividly, and as he did often, that you might just leave leaving readers to despair. Because if they see all the things that are wrong with the world, then what hope can we have, right? So he he, he actually compares it times those who despair to gladiators who think that there's no hope for them in the arena. So they just need to be as as sort of uh, violent as they need to be. There's no way they actually can do anything else but be kind of fully fully their kind of hmm. most, uh, brute selves in that way. So I think wow. The, so I despair think, can lead to brutality. It can, yes. Okay, presumption. Both can. If you if you despair of actually doing anything different, then you can actually be cruel because you have no need to change your behavior in some ways. You kind of given up on anything that would be better, and so you can kind of really double down on. He's talking about despair in this case for salvation and forgiveness. If you think you can't um, be forgiven for something, that can make you either sort of not seek forgiveness and withdraw in some way, or you can kind of just be more sort of. Um, uh, sort of brazen in your pursuit mm -hmm. of things that you uh, desire for yourself. And so you can be uh, in this way, really captured by despair. Um, but often despair is really kind of more of a form of apathy. We kind of lose motivation to do anything toward the good. So I think you're right. I think there are ways in which our current debate is really focused on presumption and despair. Mm -hmm. And then hope can be a way to disrupt that and sort of shift it a bit. And I think you mentioned climate change. I think it's a really good example. I think too often we hear climate doom in ways that, you know, so much is happening that actually is really challenging. And I think in some ways, scientists are right about our situation. There really are things happening to our world that are really putting us in severe danger. And if we ignore those things or think they actually aren't happening, we might be presumptuous mm -hmm. that we can just fix it or it'll be okay in the end or things aren't really changing. But if we only focus on diagnosing those, those matters of doom, without giving us sort of real positive guidance on how we can actually respond to it, 
or how our our lives can be changed, even in small ways to address it, or examples of people that we know or people that we really admire who are really engaging this work in ways that are meaningful, um, then you risk risk going into despair. And so we need as social critics to provoke both clear diagnoses of our problems, but also give people reasons for hope. And I think what, what Stout's describing, I think what Augustine does is that kind of rigorous critique. I think one great example of this in the, in the climate context is Wendell Berry, mm-hmm. who's one of our culture's great critics and sort of analyst of how our lives politically, ecologically, culturally are being disrupted by these major changes that could be really damaging for us as human beings. But mm-hmm. in each essay he offers on this, he often concludes by listing reasons for hope, either by giving ways in which it's not as bad as it could be, or ways in which local citizens are already working to address the things that he identifies as problems. And we can find good examples uh, in our in our in our writing, we really help audiences find ways to hope. And Barry says, if you have one good example, you have grounds for hope. And so <laughs> how in our writing as 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 writers, can we offer not just critique, but also examples hmm. that supply grounds for hope? I think that's a really important cha- charge for us. And in our culture where we really want to focus on critique, it's hard to give that constructive um, um, focus on examples as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Speaking of persuasion and um and you know a culture of despair and or presumption i hear a lot these days about the idea that we that people who disagree don't share enough common ground or a, a sufficient sense of reality to actually have a, a persuasive or a productive conversation with one another and i do think that the language of the city of man in the city of God can be mis- misused to really um, uh, exaggerate yes the um the the difficulties of people who have different values right um, and goals and hopes um, their ability to um, find common ground to persuade one another I mean you know a, a big a big part of the uh, a huge part of the concern of our political culture these days is that is anybody trying to persuade anybody or is anybody persuadable? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you address that, that claim, the idea that, I mean, that there is a reading of the city God that says there's, you know, we don't have a lot of, I mean, I, I think it's a superficial and facile reading, but, but still right. it says, See, there's not a lot of common ground between people from different belief systems. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're right. There's really a tendency in some ways to use that distinction between two cities to heaven and earth to create a rigid boundary mm-hmm. between uh, the church and the world, for example, or for the holy and the unholy or the virtuous mm-hmm. and the vicious. And there are times Augustine's own rhetoric as a rhetorician uh, it supports that kind of interpretation. He is using the kind of ancient device of antithesis or contrast where you present things in contrast to make one of them more vivid than the other. Yeah. And he often presents the city of God in contrast to show how great it is to be part of the city of God. And so he's often used that rhetorically to kind of shift uh, our desires and loves. But if you look at his writing, you actually see a much more complex picture. And he, he says explicitly in the city of God, 
uh, in book 19, that members of both cities, the earthly and heavenly, can share certain common objects of love, common goods during our shared space in this world. And he identifies civic peace as being one important part mm-hmm. of that. And for him, peace is not simply um, the lack of violence or its absence. It's actually a more positive view of civic friendship mm. and society that actually helps us think about finding goods in common. And so it's a more kind of robust view of peace than many assume it is. And so if we can share a common good like civic peace, even despite our differences, we can begin to work together. Uh-huh. And try to figure out what peace involves in our certain common life. And we can find ways to resist those things that might threaten our peace. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we might have a hard time finding a lot of agreement right now on certain common goods. We seem pretty divided. But Augustine recognizes that we, if we love something, we also should hate its opposite. Hmm. Um, and so if we love the good, he says, we must be someone who hates evil. So if we love liberty, we should hate domination. If we love justice, we should hate injustice and resist it in ways we can. And so what research has shown is that many people in our tradition, in various social movements, have often built coalitions not around what they kind of fully agreed upon, but on what they were against. Slavery, domination, inequality. So you look at the history of social movements, many people join them, not because they have a shared vision for justice that's complete and full, but because they really hate slavery. Yeah. They want to resist slavery or they really want to resist, for example, inequality. So the civil rights movement, for example, the abolition movement, women's suffrage, all bring people in based on this desire to really resist a common evil in some mm-hmm. way, not just to seek a common good. And from that coalition building, they've been fine common goods they can all agree on as they work together toward this shared goal. So I think Augustine gives us ways to think about how we engage each other on on our own terms and find a convergence around certain common goods and common evils that can help build coalitions that might address the problems that we see. Yeah. Interesting. Um, there is, there's a, a oh, pro, what's the, the proximate ends? Is that the a phrase you use? I do. Yeah. I use proximate ends. So um, people often will, will read Augustine to, to say that we should love human beings in the world as means of loving God as the ultimate end, which tends to instrumentalize human beings in the world as just m- mere means to our ultimate ends. And if you look at the language from Latin, that's not what he means. Um, in fact, he doesn't use the word means in that way. That's a more modern term. Uh-huh. Uh, he uses neighbor, which is proximus in Latin. Uh-huh. So proximate are those things near to us that are part of achieving a more distant or ultimate goal. And so I think in that way, his his account of how we love the world and the neighbor as approximate good as part of loving the ultimate good, which he sees as God is a really important way to challenge this idea that there are ends and means mm-hmm. that, that can be separated in the ways it's often assumed. Mm-hmm. And you're saying proximate starting with a P not approximate. Yes. Proximate. Yeah. It's so, just yeah, kind of hard to understand, you know, in audio and we'll make sure that was Absolutely. clear. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so proximate goods. And I think this is very important for us because we can, often identify these proximate goods that we share when we might differ on our ultimate ends. Mm -hmm. And so citizens from different faiths, for example, might share a a love of peace or even to use your example earlier, a desire to um, help preserve creation or the climate 
Mm-hmm. And I might do that for different theological or political or social purposes, but find common ground around a vision of kind of holistic ecology that might support our life as human beings for a long time and help support the ecosystems that we find ourselves in. So there are ways we can agree on certain goods without agreeing on why mm-hmm. ultimately we, we we care about those goods. So that yeah. kind of proximate good gives us a way to think about the common objects that we we love. Yeah. Yeah. You you quote Jonathan Sachs. Uh, is, is he a rabbi? Is Jonathan Sachs a rabbi? The late Jonathan Sachs. He, he passed away. Oh. He, he was a rabbi. Uh, what was a in, rabbi? In, in yeah. the UK, yes. Yeah. Um, who says, having different points of departure, even different systems of justification, does not imply that we cannot arrive at something like consensus. Right. Which is kind of the same, another same way of saying what you just said. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, and for some reason, we seem to have gotten it in our head that if we don't ultimately, if we don't share all the ultimate goals, somehow we can't be allies. Right. There's, I think there's a kind of real... Um, in some ways, a real purity politics that we see mm-hmm. right now, yeah. where you have to agree on everything all the way down and all the way up to be able mm-hmm. to be allies or friends. And what what I think Augustine's doing in his writing um, and others are doing across the tradition is showing ways in which we can find common ground with people who are very different from us. And we ought to really celebrate that. And mm-hmm. and from that ground, find other ways we can work together toward toward common human flourishing. So I do think that's a really important strategy for us. And I think in our current context, um, the ways in which we've given media and given our political discourse have treated others as enemies, not as fellow citizens who could be friends is yeah. a real um, limit of our discourse and a real danger to our democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of purity politics to, to borrow your phrase uh, makes it really hard to, to do um, something that, that you speak of in your book, you say engaging others around their own values is typically more persuasive than trying to convince them based on one's own. Right? Yes. Right. And if I'm engaging in purity politics, I can't even acknowledge that, that, you know, uh, values other than my own have any value at all. I, 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 right. I don't know if I'm right. Yeah. Say I think that, but. What, what we see in, in both Augustine, for example, who, often engages his Roman interlocutors, his, his pagan sort of mm-hmm. uh, opponents on their own terms, using their own authorities. Mm-hmm. And what we see also in contemporary psychology and political science is the ways in which engaging people on their own terms, not your terms, um, is a much more effective way to persuade people. It shows respect for them and their own authorities. Even if we disagree with them, we can acknowledge our disagreements, but explain if you believe this, then shouldn't you also believe this and this and shouldn't mm-hmm. your actions reflect this belief in some way that's a much more persuasive way to engage people than saying you don't believe like i do therefore you're automatically wrong so yeah. how do we use what scholars call imminent critique or internal critique um where we engage people in their own authorities their own actions um to really help us find common ground i think it's really important and i think we need to be more attuned to that that requires careful listening <laughs> It requires understanding other people's authorities. We have to really kind of be empathetic toward them and really take time to understand their own traditions and their own backgrounds and ask them questions about those. Um, And also really takes time to really work through that dialogue, which is back and forth. It's not easy. It's not quick. I think we also are in a culture right now that really wants quick solutions and sound bites. Yeah, that doesn't create the spaces for real complex conversation um, toward persuasion. So I think Augustine... Um, and others have done a really good job at offering different examples of that. That doesn't mean that we can't also have our own views. I think I, would, I do want to acknowledge the ways in which sometimes we need to 
have the courage of our convictions. If something is really unjust or a matter of domination, we should be able to say that even vigorously as we need to. So I don't think um, it means that we just all hold hands and get along. There should be a role for conflict and contestation if it might be um, about matters of ultimate concern. But I also think that we've, we're too, we've become really good at conflict without thinking about the ways we can find common ground across these differences. So I do want to acknowledge a way in which it is important for us to, to have courage, yeah. uh, even as we seek to be more empathetic and listen to those who might be different from us. Well, because the goal is still persuasion, right? We're still trying to bring people over to our side or, or, or hopefully we're hope we, we are together moving toward a, a better, something better yes. that I may or may not, that you, maybe I'm wrong. It's possible that I'm wrong right. about, you know, the best means to getting toward a, a future that we hope for. Right. And I think it's right. I think your, your caveat is really important. I think we can aim for persuasion, but we also, we also be humble about our own views enough to be open to changing our minds as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And finding ways to work together that might not have been possible for our conversation. So both courage and conviction with, with humility and openness yeah. being the kind of secret combination that might make this work most, most effective for our right. common good. And either way, it's a commitment to what's true and good. Yes. Possibly beautiful that is greater than my commitment to my desire to be right. And, and an acknowledgement that, that truth doesn't start inside my own head. Exactly. Yeah. And that we, we have a, we share common goods together. Even our relationships together can be common goods. We, we need to nurture. Yeah. So it's not just about my own self, uh, but about the goods we share in common. Even our relationships can be ways that we motivated to seek the good of, of others, not just ourselves. So I think that's a really important caveat. It's, it's really about the vision of our collective life, not just our own individual good that motivates this work. Yeah. 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 Great. All right, Michael Lamb, let me ask you one last question. This is my typical last question. I'm, I'll be very eager to hear your answer. Wh- who are the writers who make you want to write? Mm, that's a great question. And I love thinking about writing in this context. We, we uh, often don't talk about writing enough in the academy. We talk about our, our ideas, but not how we express them. So I love hearing writers reflect on their own process and their own their own approach. And for me, I think there are two that come to mind. One is Wendell Berry, who mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier. Um, Berry um, grew up on a farm in Kentucky and writes very deeply and authentically out of his own place. And as someone who grew up on a farm in Tennessee and really understands that lifestyle, I've been really grateful for Berry's ability to give voice to that in ordinary language in ways that's really captures its complexity um, but also to bring the fruits of his reading and study of literature, history, politics into that conversation. And so for yeah. me, as someone who is from the farm, but also now find myself as a teacher and, and professor, I love ways in which we can bring our own experiences together with the rich fruits of our traditions yeah. to, to seek wisdom. I think Barry's one example, somebody doing that in his writing. Do you have a preference for his uh, fiction or his essays or his poetry? You know, I love all of them. Uh, I think for me, I think they each serve a different purpose. And uh-huh. I find myself when I'm reading his poetry, I'm much more attuned to uh, my daily experience and uh-huh. able to be pay attention better yeah. uh, because I'm seeing the ways in which this is being captured in more condensed and concise form. When I read his essays, I, I find his ability to use examples and arguments and draw on a rich tradition really persuasive. Mm-hmm. And when I read his novels, um, be that Jaber Crow or Hannah Coulter, um, I see someone sort of taking his ideas and 
presenting them in very creative ways that help you inhabit the life, mm-hmm. not just to read about it. And so I think each has a different role. And I just love the ways in which the different ideas intersect in different genres. So I, I love all of them. I think I'm probably um, more inclined toward different uh, genres at different times. And yeah, right. I've been reading more of, of Barry's uh, poetry recently as I think about how to sort of be attuned to experience more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do love all of them. Yeah. All right. You said you had another writer. Who, who's your well, other one? I mentioned, I'll mention is Anne Lamott, who I love her work, uh, her, her, her real sort of verve and authenticity and humor yeah. and her book bird by bird uh, is probably my favorite book about writing yeah uh, yeah really capture capture these ideas in ways that really cause you to to laugh to pause to think about your own experience and then yeah. to give you the courage to begin to express it i think she's yeah. brilliant at that and i love the way that she communicates uh, in her work yeah well great well, Michael Lamb, thank you so much for being here. I love talking about Augustine, and I uh, love meeting you. And uh, I wish you well as you you're working on your next book. You said it's it's about um, character training. Am I saying yeah. that right? Yeah. So I, I do work at Wake Forest, where I am now, on how to educate character, and we have a whole program focused on leadership and character. So this book's really taking the work I've done with colleagues from Oxford on seven strategies to form character, and offering a book that shares those strategies in ways to help teachers and and students and others uh, develop virtues they need to to flourish, including, I hope, the virtue of of hope and courage. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks. Thanks, Jonathan. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate.